Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. It's Sunday, January 10th, and you're listening to Backchat, where we break down the news you don't want to miss. Welcome to our summer special. Before we be begin today, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Gadigal land and pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. I'm Chantelle Alcouri. And I'm Millie Roberts. While we can't go exploring the world this summer, here at Backchat, we're exploring the great backdoors instead. And not in a weird way, we're talking about everything from sharks to extreme heat in Western Sydney on this beautiful 26 degree day. But here's what's coming up in the next 15 minutes. First, Backchat producer Rebecca Manibog deep dives into the world of extreme selfies. After that, you'll hear from CEO Sarah Liberty from Online Human Rights NGO Just Social about the proposed trolling laws. As always, we want to hear from you. Have you ever taken an Insta selfie in a risky outdoor location and lived to tell the tale? Text us in on 0409 945 945 or tweet us at BackchatFBI. FBI 94.5. You know, Mills, COVID has me in absolute wanderlust and it has me wanting to escape some picture per- escape to some picture-perfect locations. Look, honestly, same. And especially seeing these cool, illusionary pickies like at Wedding Cake Rock, I don't think I'd have the guts to do it myself, but clearly heaps of people on my feed do. It's crazy because I see a lot of people dangling off these cliffs and it has me on the edge of my seat. Like, you're going to do all that for what? A selfie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all about those angles, but those extreme selfies are um, leaving us queasy on site. Backchat producer Rebecca Manibug explores the world of extreme selfies. You don't want to miss this one. Ah, uh, yes, the great outdoors, the smell of eucalyptus and koala bear droppings, and the sounds of our native animals. You know what's even killer? And no, not crocodiles. And if anyone knows me, I do not mess with those. But selfies. Yes, a killer pic, literally. With COVID-19 grounding us from the rest of the world, Aussies are looking to our own backyard for a sense of adventure and travel. However, when we stray to dangerous cliffs, rushing water, or go chasing waterfalls, unfortunately one misstep can lead to a lengthy rescue mission or even a fatality. Over the boom of social media and sites such as YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and all that good stuff, deaths caused by extreme selfies are recorded to be trickling up. The New York Post published an article noting that selfie deaths took over the deaths caused by sharks. And not going to lie, I have been taking some photos that are pretty dangerous too, such as Belmore Falls which requires you to jump over a fence to access the first couple steep hills to get to the basin. Most recently, a mother unfortunately passed away whilst trying to capture a moment with her kids in Melbourne at Baroka Lookout. But why are people risking their lives just to take a selfie? Is it the adrenaline rush or the saying pics or it didn't happen? Let's take a look into why people are into extreme selfies. As you know, Australia is gorgeous in all her glory. From built environments to her flora and fauna, Australia is the best of both worlds. So who wouldn't want to take a quick snap? But as mentioned previously, injuries caused by selfies are slightly increasing. Surprisingly, or maybe not so much, cameras and natures have always had a rocky relationship since the inception of the snapshotting device. New South Wales Fire Rescue says that camera and selfie-related injuries have always been around. Superintendent Scott Dodson says, Extreme selfies have always been an issue, and it hasn't just been recent. There has been instances uh, from back when cameras first came about when people 
wanted to go out and get that great photo, whether it be falling from trees or bird watches. Uh, so it's nothing new. But people are taking higher risk these days to get that photo and post it online. Posting online may have had an influence on the influx of deaths and injuries related to selfies gone wrong. Explorer duo and hiking gurus from Western Sydney, Keely and Aiden from the Trax Tribe, are a pair who do not mind sharing a pick of waterfalls or a sick hike that they've just embarked on. As Keely and Aiden have pondered about what causes some people to post extreme selfies online. I think it makes it a bit more personal. You could, you could type into Google Belmore Falls and look at as many photos as you want, but you, you've got this photo of you there on any memories attached to that. You know, you had a good day with friends or maybe with a solo um, walk, thing like that. I think it just places you in time at that place for yourself. And if you want, you can share it, but I think, I think that's why. I guess it's probably just going a little bit deeper, but like, you know, selfies, like a lot of people, it's kind of portraying, I guess, like a self-important perspective. Not too long ago, National Parks New South Wales announced that barriers will be placed near Wedding Cake Rock to try and prevent people from taking photos on the edge. And similar to Wedding Cake Rock, other selfie hotspots have signage mentioning penalties should they try and take some shots in dangerous spots. Superintendent Scott Dodson mentions that New South Wales National Parks and Councils can only do so much to protect selfie lovers. Yeah, look, I think our councils and our national parks are doing the best they can with the resources they've got. National parks is one of the biggest landholders in Australia, and it comes down to education, and people need to be able to, need to take responsibility for their own actions. Uh, we, we can't put a sign or a date around every risk area in a national park, and that would take away the beauty of that national park as well. So we need to take some personal responsibility in taking, when we go out into the wilderness, And let's be realistic, humans will continue to do what we want whenever we want, whether it be a fully sick cliffhanging photo or a trend such as planking. Y'all remember that, right? But influencers such as the Trax Tribe can only do so much to provide disclaimers warning others about risk areas. As summer is sizzling up a storm and us not being able to leave, New South Wales Fire Rescue and the hiking community ask for you to take care as they both pose the question, is this selfie really to die for? Is this photo really worth your life or a life of injury? Is that photo worth your life? And it's probably not. <laughs> that was Backchat producer Rebecca Manebog and her investigation into extreme selfies. Back chat. Text 0409-945-945. The internet is a weird and wonderful place, but it can often be filled with the darkness of online hate. And recently, the federal government has proposed a bill where social media companies would have to take 
take down quote unquote seriously harmful content within 24 hours of it being reported rather than the 48 hours under the current rules. And if the content is not removed in time, companies and individuals could face huge fines. Joining us is CEO Sarah Liberty from the first federal NGO for online human rights, Just Social, to provide some clarity on what these proposed laws will mean for Australians. Hey Sarah, thanks for joining us. Hi, it's my pleasure. So under the proposed law, what is considered seriously harmful content? Uh, So the proposed bill would require platforms to remove severely harmful, abusive or bullying content within 24 hours or face restrictions within Australia. So fines of up to $111,000 have been proposed for individuals who abuse, threaten, intimidate, post revenge porn, bully children and over half a million dollars for corporations like Facebook and Twitter who refuse to take down offensive material or reveal the identity of perpetrators. And will these proposed laws deal with abusive comments around um, groups of people based on things like ethnicity, disability, race, gender and sexuality? Well, that's a really good question because it doesn't seem... This is actually one of my um, core questions around these new laws. I consider them to be quite vague in terms of um, who they'll be targeting. They'll be targeting only adults. So that means that groups of people who might be posting offensive material, um, whether that be hate speech or online bullying towards other groups of people, um, such as diverse communities like LGBTQI or people of different ethnicities, um, will will not be uh, penalised by, by these laws. And you kind of touched on this, but in the past and even now, social media companies have gotten away with not being transparent with their users. For example, it would take days for something reported to be addressed, and even then, nothing would be done about it. Do you think things Mm. like this will be amended through the proposed law? Um, You know what? I actually don't think they will be, because I've personally been targeted by online bullying and online comments that haven't really been uh, what would be considered from what I can understand of these laws harmful um, but are still hurtful. So I've had people comment on my Facebook page that my lips are too big and I shouldn't be speaking out about human rights uh, activism. Uh, I also have a good friend who is transgender and she's had people comment on her the fact that she's not wearing a very nice dress. So I don't think these laws are going to um, prevent the the kind of content that can be um, targeted at diverse communities. Thank you so much for sharing that, by the way. Uh, You're locked on Backchat FBI Radio's flagship news and current affairs show, and we're speaking with Sarah Liberty from Just Social about a new bill to knock online trolls on their head. So, Sarah, some people are worried about censorship. So what are your thoughts on this and would the proposed law limit free speech? I think that anyone who is um, using, who who is not uh, speaking online with uh, dignity or respect for other people, their, their free speech 
is actually should be limited. That's not, you know, that's not human rights free speech. So um, I'm not concerned about the censorship aspect. And in your opinion, is this enough to counter trolling and make victims feel safer? No. Um, look, this bill specifically targets adults. What about other people, like young people or, mm. or groups, like I've mentioned? I don't think this law will prevent harm from occurring in the first place. Um, the definition of harmful content is too vague. Um, like I've touched on, what about comments that are, you know, that are, that are not very nice but may still cause people distress or anxiety? The other huge concern that I have is that blocking apps, which the law is proposed to do, um, completely for millions of Australians will significantly disadvantage these people who use them safely and responsibly for connection with friends, family members and for work and to stay in touch with loved ones. So I think if the government wants to be a world leader in online safety regulation, which it says it does, it should be actually doing much more to promote good digital citizenship um, and what responsible, respectful online behaviour is. And according to Just Social's Code of Contact, Conduct, sorry, what is considered good digital citizenship? Well, a few examples are basically um, our online human rights are no different to our offline human rights, which many Australians aren't aware of. So the first point would be is just always treat people online with dignity and respect. Another um, aspect of good digital citizenship is to monitor your digital footprint. Know what is out there on the internet about you. Keep your private information private and always be think about the future and be mindful of your personal brand because everything is saved on the internet. So, you know, be mindful of what you say so that it doesn't hurt your reputation um, because friends, family and future employers can look at it and what you say and the World Wide Web isn't just an open source of information, it also makes your life an open book. Sarah, thank you so much for your time and for all your insight. My pleasure. That was CEO Sarah Liberty from Federal NGO for Online Human Rights, Just Social, discussing the proposed trolling laws. If you've experienced cyber abuse and your concern hasn't been addressed, you can head to the eSafety Commissioner website. Now we've got a song for you. This one is an oldie but a goodie. This is Tia Tamara by Doja Cat featuring Rico Nasty. Language warning. You're listening to FBI 94.5. Just another song that we're going to cut off short, but let's get into some news now. Backchat um, is bringing you some more stories for the next half hour. For many people with disabilities, pre-cut fruit and veggies have helped them be more independent, but there are still barriers they face when it comes to food packaging being inaccessible. inaccessible sorry. Backchat reporter Sana Sheikh spoke with Jerusha Maitha and Judlin Anthony about making food more accessible for people with disabilities. Check it out. My name is Judlin Anthony. My disability is T12 
incomplete, paraplegic. I've been in wheelchair since 1996, since I had bomb blast back in Sri Lanka due to the civil war. And as that's the cause of why I'm in a wheelchair. Hi, my name is Delisa. I have cerebral palsy. It affects my fine motor skills. Jerusha has started a petition to make food packaging more accessible for people with disabilities. Here's why she started it. I was learning how to cook and I found out that the food packaging was hard for me to open. I thought that if they could change the packaging to suit my needs. So that's why I for people with disabilities, there can be barriers that they face when it comes to food. This can range from when purchasing food or even when preparing it. Being disabled, that more difficulty is how far the food is kept in the aisles. If they're too low or really high, they stack higher than your reach. And if we're going to go for a food and then be looking and it's packaged in a heavy or if it's larger than your potential. For example, if you're going to pick up some drinks can and if they're too heavy for you to put them in your lap, those things are not much wheelchair friendly. My personal challenges have been with grass, especially tightly closed gaps. I find it really difficult to open them. Also, things are because some of the thin openings do not suit my needs. For Judeland and Jerusha, accessible packaging means more than just food. It also means independence and dignity. Having in a accessible packaging for disabled people, considering them, will become a more of an inclusive part of our community. So it will mean a lot for a person with disability to say, okay, they have, they've been included us as consumers. And more than anything, it's dignity. And if people do some thinking about, okay, if someone in a wheelchair, paraplegic, okay, they will have this much of a limitations, these kind of items will, it will be an easier for them to take those packaging and take it home and enjoy the food. I think it would improve their quality of life. I think it, it would also mean that I can cook a decent meal on my own. We wouldn't really have to depend on support workers or family or friends, which kind of takes away our freedom in a way. We've all tried the pre-cut fruit and veggies available at grocery stores. For some people with disabilities, like Jude Land and Jerusha, pre-cut food has played a crucial role in their independence. It's been amazing because, uh, because as I said, I've been in uh, Australia since 1998. And back in those days, I don't think this much of uh, pre-packed, anything that you want right now, they got a smaller version of that. Like watermelon were cut into cups and pineapples were cut into cups. Uh, meats for cutting the chops and so everything so what happens is that it's give us something that we can eat we have an option we can make it i personally love using pre-cut 
my time in the kitchen and it saves a lot of my energy. I, I kind of get to eat healthy food at the end of the day. So what can be done to make food more accessible for people with a variety of disabilities? I would say that because the disability cannot be underlined in one definition, but it's really, really hard to fulfill the needs of everyone and having those multiple uh, varieties of options and making sure people are more included making sure that you address them, speak to people, have surveys, have people around the shops when they see a disabled people, ask them questions, bring them into the picture. We need to have like a group of people that are similar to a consulting group that can give feedback to these brands and manufacturers. Group can be like filled with people who have different needs and different disabilities. We need to test the product with people with a disability, and companies are currently not doing that. We really need to start including people with disabilities in every area of life. We'll link the petition to make food packages more accessible for people with disabilities on our socials. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 and now we've got a track by Texan music duo Surfaces. This is Sunday Best and keep it locked. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. It's nearly 10.30am and you're listening to Backchat with Chantella Mills, the flagship news and current affairs show on FBI Radio. So Millie, what's coming up on the remainder of the show? We're looking at why Western Sydney gets so hot in summer in comparison to the rest of the city. Then, each summer, the country grapples with whether sharks are going to kill us or not, so we're debunking top shark myths for a safe summer in the ocean. But first, we'll be looking into why refugees are currently being detained in Australian hotels with almost no access to the outside world. FBI. 94.5. In 2019, 192 refugees from Nauru and Manus Island were brought to Australia under Medivac laws, which were enacted to grant detained refugees urgent medical attention. 65 of those refugees were then held in Melbourne's Mantra Hotel for over a year, with claims they were locked in their rooms for 23 hours a day. Some even said that the conditions were worse than those on Manus Island. Last month, they were moved to the Park Hotel, with no explanation of where they will end up next. They reportedly have no access to facilities, visitors, little to no medical attention, and are trapped in their rooms. There are currently demands that these refugees be freed into the community to receive the medical attention they need. Earlier, Chantel spoke to Mustafa Azimatiba, a Kurdish refugee and one of the 60 men detained in Park Hotel right now. He has spent more than eight years in detention, previously on Manus Island, and is still awaiting medical attention. Have a listen. My name is Mustafa Azimitabar. Everyone calls me Moss. I am a Kurdish refugee who was transferred to uh, Manus forcibly and uh, I was imprisoned there for years and years. 
and last year um, on 11th of November 2019 I was transferred to Australia for medical help under the medical legislation I've been locked up in a couple of places they call it hotel but it's not a hotel and we have been locked up for more than a year and we haven't received any proper medication because I suffer from asthma suffer from PTSD and some mental problems and uh, I haven't received any proper medication and instead of treatment I have received just punishment we are here to be treated not to be punished make no mistake this is not a hotel this place ceased to be a hotel when we were forcibly transferred here a hotel is a place where people can rent a room um, to be comfortable but we are far from comfortable what kind of hotel forbids freedom of movement what kind of hotel has officers enter the room several times a day they said that because of covid-19 they have canceled all the visits but i don't know why like 100 officers are working here if if there is a glass in between friends and i that are going to visit me how can we spread the virus when there is a glass but inside the glass there are many officers walking close to us they come to our room and i think they have decided to use this virus to put pressure on us and it's like a corona torture calling this place as a hotel plays into the government system of oppression by hiding the real situation i have been moved around for their pocket and they are filling the company's pocket with uh, people's tax people don't want to pay tax for my torture i am sure about it and i believe that there are many wonderful people in australia who care for us they told us that they were going to move us to a better place a more comfortable place with better conditions but the reality is completely different same shit different address in the park hotel most of the windows are blocked by a cement wall previously in mantra we could see people outside waving at us smiling at us protesting for us i really cannot breathe in this room in the mantra we could open the windows just like a 10 centimeter now it is simply glass like a visible coffin and i feel like a ghost because every day when i wake up i feel it is becoming increasingly difficult i can see everything but people cannot see me the tinted glass hides us from you because they do not want you to see us anymore we are being covered up uh, hidden away uh, so that you forget we are here for almost 8 years I have been in detention by the Australian government but my message to people in Australia is love because I believe that we are born to love and respect each other the politicians in Australia are blaming each other rather than finding humanitarian solution and they are using us for their political advancement the reality is that the government uh, are treating us worse than criminals 
Even criminals in jail are supported to study, but we have been prohibited. You know, we cannot study at all. If I was allowed to study, I could get my PhD now. Why do they waste our lives? Why they are torturing us? I would like to uh, ask all wonderful people in Australia that once again get together and put lots of pressure on these politicians and so that they speak up for us. The silence of the Labour Party is deafening. 2,700 days is not enough that this issue be on the table. This is not a hotel. This is absolutely a prison. Joining us now to speak more on the conditions in Park Hotel and several other detention facilities is Campaigns Manager at Amnesty International, Tim O'Connor. Hi, Tim. Thanks for your time. Yeah, good morning. So we know for some, hotel quarantine due to COVID has driven travellers a bit stir-crazy, and that's only for two weeks. How are the refugees in these hotels faring mentally after a year cooped indoors? I mean, the situation there is, you know, it's absolutely devastating for so many people. You know, as you said, a couple of weeks in uh, hotel quarantine seems uh, pretty torturous for many, many Australians. Something that's pretty unthinkable just, uh, you know, eight or nine months ago. But these these guys have now been locked up for eight years, um, you know, experienced um, horrendous situations in places like Manus Island or Nauru where they weren't able to get adequate medical care. They, they often... Um, got very serious medical conditions from being in those difficult situations. They were brought to Australia for those reasons, and now they're locked up. But these these aren't really hotels. I mean, they're, they're effectively cells that they're kept in uh, up to 24 hours a day. Uh, and people like Moz, who you just heard from, he's been there for more than a year now. And it's a, it's a devastating situation for hundreds and hundreds of people. And what risks does being there pose during the pandemic? Well, I guess the risks are, are really enormous. Um, you know, what um, the people inside these um, these cells have been telling us is, is that the guards are coming and going. There hasn't been effective um, measures around quarantine for sure. There haven't been. There's been no PPE that's been available to them. Certainly, the guards don't seem to have it. We've seen the, the situation in hotel quarantine in Victoria. It's caused such a devastating situation for for hundreds of people. You know, led to led to hundreds of deaths. But they, these measures that are put in place that are standard across uh, uh, all quarantine services are not being implemented in 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 um, in APODs, in alternative places of detention, where these refugees are locked up for, for more than 23 hours a day. So the risks are real. Uh, fortunately, we haven't seen any uh, outbreaks at this point, but it's something that these people uh, who were trapped in these centres by the Australian government, by the policies of the Australian government, uh, are forced to deal with every single minute of every single day while they're detained. As we understand, many are outraged and holding regular protests outside these hotels. How has the government responded to these calls for action? Oh, it's been completely hopeless from the government. I mean, we saw Morrison. He was the he was the immigration minister uh, when you know these people were, when when this government came to power back in 2013. He's now the prime minister, of course. Peter Dutton has been the immigration minister since then. Over those eight years, um, there's there's been no solution for these uh, mostly men. There is a couple of families also who are locked up in these um, these detention cells um, for up to 24 hours a day, uh, and it's, it's a devastating situation for them. And the government, I mean, it, it just does not have a plan. And this is the great travesty. And while we've seen so many, so many Australians rise up in places like Kangaroo Point, up in Queensland, and also outside, um, you know, the, the, the detention centres or the detention, the alternative place of detention, as they're called, which is not really these cells, 
Um, we've seen them in Australia as well, in Melbourne, um, doing fantastic um, solidarity actions. And the people inside them are, are, are very, very thankful for those solidarity actions, but it's really not enough. The government's got to come up with a plan. These people could be being in the community, contributing members of our community, but instead we're keeping their situations totally ad hoc uh, and it's cruel. And really, it's, it's got to end. And as you've said, these refugees were initially brought to Australia to receive urgent medical attention. And Moz told me that he's still waiting on appointments for specialists and isn't receiving proper medication. So why are they being detained here if they aren't receiving that attention that they were promised? Yeah, it's absolutely farcical. Um, I mean, and it's typical of the way these, you know, these innocent people who, you know, they're the they came to Australia seeking safety, seeking refuge from danger. Uh, many of them are, are people who spoke out against oppressive governments or, you know, they stood up for uh, the rights of women in their communities or they stood against uh, re- religious extremism. Um, you know, these are people that are now locked up in these centres for, for 23 hours a day. And, and people like Moz, who is such a gentle, uh, powerful, strong, artistic, you know, beautiful man, for him to have to go through this situation for more than a year now, he's been locked in a hotel room with one other person. It's not like solitary confinement. There's another person in there, but they cannot go outside at all. Imagine not being able to open a window and get some fresh air in. I mean, the sound of cicadas, which you can probably hear in the back, are typical to many Australians, but these these people are locked in these centres. These things are unimaginable to them because they've lost any... They've lost any sense of hope, and that deprivation of hope is something that is extreme danger because it will drive. We've seen it in the past. More than 13 people have died, uh, one of them murdered, but others have, have committed suicide because of the situation the Australian government keeps these people in. That is a very real danger for so many of these hundreds of men who are detained in these centres today. And finally, Tim, what can we do to help? Well, there's lots we can do to help. Um, I think that, you know there's lots of. Um, Facebook pages and things that are organising protests up up in um, Kangaroo Point. Um, you know, there's been a fantastic effort by the community there, a very broad range of the community. There's teachers and accountants and lawyers and students uh, all out there standing up for what is right, for what is just, in solidarity with these men. You, um, there's similar things happening in Melbourne, the Park Hotel there, and there's also... Um, you know, another venue in Melbourne, there's a place in Darwin, and people being out the front is really important. So doing that is crucial, but also joining together and fighting. I know the um, on the Amnesty webpage you can sign up, um, you know, sign a petition, bring more pressure on the government. We know it does have an impact. It's been very slow to move on these people, but we're very confident that in the next few months we have to get these people out because if we don't, the danger to their lives is very, very real. Tim, thank you so much for your time and for everything that you're doing for this issue. Thank you very much for um, for taking interest in it. Of course. That was Campaigns Manager at Amnesty International, Tim O'Connor, talking to us about refugees being detained in hotels across the country. Next, we're talking about how extreme heat is disproportionately affecting people from Western Sydney. But we've got a song now. This is OTV1 by Southwest Sydney duo Pistol Pistol Pete and Enzo. Language warning on this one. FBI 94.5 Sydney summer is often unbearable. Personally, I can't stand the heat. Millie, what do you do to stay cool? Well, I like to lock myself in my room and crank up my little room fan, and this is dealing with like literally 35 degrees max. Many Western Sydney locals who experience more extreme hot weather events in comparison to the rest of Sydney are limited in options to cool down. We're joined by the CEO of the Western Sydney Regional Organisation of Councils, Charles Casasoli, to discuss how extreme heat weather unfairly impacts people from Western Sydney. Hi Charles, thanks for joining us. 
Good morning. It's my pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Can you explain why Western Sydney gets hotter than other areas on average? Uh, sure. Um, there's been a little bit, not a little bit, there's been quite a lot of research done. Uh, Western Sydney, because it's actually caught on the eastern side of the Blue Mountain Ranges, and the fact that it's a little bit landlocked away from the sea breezes, and you've got mountains to the west, and you've got some other uh, landscape features that are north and south, it means it's almost a bowl, a place where heat just conglomerates. It's just the weather pattern that makes it hotter than any other place in, uh, in, uh, in Greater Sydney. And what choices do Western Sydney people have in summer if they're trying to escape the heat? Well, they, still have, they have the same choices as everyone else, except, unfortunately, in Western Sydney, uh, we have um, suffered from underinvestment in transport, for example. So if the rest of Sydney getting to a beach... Uh, getting to a place where you get the, uh, the, uh, the cooling effects of the, um, of the sea breezes, uh, it's difficult for people in Western Sydney to get to it. So if you own a car in Western Sydney, uh, it's a long way away from the beach. When you get there, there's no parking. It becomes a drama. And, and the reality is public transport from Western Sydney to get to the beaches, uh, you know, you're looking for a, a couple of hours each way. So half the day's gone just in travel. Um, so you don't have those options available to you. But other options that you may have uh, in other parts of Sydney that you may not have in Western Sydney is uh, simply because of the, the population growth out there. Um, you know, we don't have as many swimming pools as we like, a place where people can go and get seek relief. Uh, getting on a public transport again, you know, if you want to walk to a bus stop, you walk to a bus stop, when you get there waiting for a bus, there is no bus shelter. So you can't actually stand there for half an hour waiting for a bus. So those options are out. Really, the only options for Western Sydney is we hope that, uh, you know, you make enough money to be able to afford air conditioning and pay for the energy and stay in home or seek refuge in a shopping centre. And for people who may come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, how are they affected by the heat out west? Uh, well, they're affected uh, far, far more than anyone else for a number of reasons. Uh, Western Sydney suffers from two health-related issues that uh, extreme heat and heatwave events makes worse, and that is the, we have an obesity problem in Western Sydney and we have a diabetes problem in Western Sydney. Uh, when heat hits, of course, both of those two conditions are exacerbated by the heat, which means that people need to go to hospital, either present to emergency departments and hospitals, or they just suffer uh, in their own homes. And it is a well-known fact uh, that in Western Sydney, the rates of uh, people um, dying from related uh, side effects uh, from extreme heat events on things like obesity and diabetes means that, um, you know, if you put the total number of people combined for the other natural disasters like flooding, like bushfires, unfortunately, extreme heat and heat waves kills more people uh, than those two events combined. And from time to time, other parts of Sydney, such as the eastern suburbs, also get extremely hot weather. What's the difference between them and uh, people from Western Sydney experiencing hot weather? Uh, a couple of things. Um, you know, if you have a, a, an above 40 degree day in the eastern part of Greater Sydney, along the eastern seaboard, if you like, you would have about 13 or 14 or 15 days of extreme heat in Western Sydney. So we, Western Sydney just suffers from extreme heat far more times, far many more times than people of Eastern Sydney. And of course, in Eastern Sydney, you know, you, you live in a place where it has well developed infrastructure. So, you know, access to aquatic centres and swimming pools. Uh, and other infrastructure like community centres that are air-conditioned and the like, there are far more of those in eastern Sydney than in western Sydney. Uh, so there, there is a, a disparate, um, uh, if you like, um, in infrastructure where people in western Sydney can get access to to get respite from these extreme heat, heat wave events. 
And finally, is there any government intervention in place to help the people of Western Sydney deal with the heat this summer? Look, I have to, I have to be honest here and say, look, the, the state government has done some great work, and so has local government. I think there's been a partnership between local government and state government uh, in trying to address the, the heatwave problems of Western Sydney. But you know, the reality is it was local government that actually picked this up as a, a social and health issue well before the state Commonwealth government did anything about it. Um, and we've been working at this in collaboration with Western Sydney University, uh, with industry, and with a bunch of councils in Western Sydney. But unfortunately, the response from the state government so far is to plant more trees. And, and we all know that planting a tree isn't going to give you any tree canopy cover that provides shade and provides a more uh, conducive uh, outdoor environment for humans. But it takes 30, 40 years for trees to grow and provide that shade. But if you have a look at the main effort, we're spending lots and lots of money in planting trees. But there's so much more things that we could do to actually alleviate the problem tomorrow. And this is where I think councils need to uh, get the message to the state Commonwealth governments a little bit better than we have, because there are things we can do, such as, you know, our streets, for example. This is one example that actually gets me really annoyed, is we're actually developing areas now in Western Sydney where there isn't enough space on the side of the road to actually plant trees and have a footpath, so that people can actually, in the middle of the summer, walk along the footpath in shade, for example. Now, that's absolutely ludicrous today that we're allowing our communities to be built without that fundamental design principle. And then if you, have a, if you stand on a rooftop and look out Western Sydney, we're still building um, estates with dark-coloured roofs. And science has proven that two things are going to come out of dark-coloured roofs. One is the house will be unbearably hot in summer unless you, have, you can afford air conditioning and insulation. And two, even if you can afford... Um, uh, uh, air conditioning and insulation, your energy costs are going to go through the roof in any case. But yet, we are still building homes in Western Sydney, the centre of this heat pole, that has dark coloured roofs. And of course, I could go on about other materials that we use and the fact that we're, everywhere we're building, we're laying concrete and asphalt and we don't simply lay enough green carpet. And these are the things that will make life a little bit easier in the, in the middle of Western Sydney. Charles, this has been so informative. Thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Have a good day. That was Charles Kasuli, the CEO of the Western Sydney Regional Organisation of Councils, speaking to us about why extreme heat negatively impacts Western Sydney locals more than the rest of Sydney. Keep it locked on FBI 94.5 because before you hop into the ocean today, we're talking shark smarts with Dr. Dowell McPhee. Fact chat. Text 0409 945 945. When you're swimming in the ocean, how often do scenes of, sh- of Jaws and Sharknado pop into your head? Look, if you answered with a lot, you're not alone. Shark anxiety is very real. But how worried should we really be about becoming a meal for our gilly ocean friends? Backchat reporter Eamon Snow took our shark questions to Dr. Daryl McPhee to clear up some of the confusion and hysteria. Have a listen. Sitting down now with Daryl McPhee. Now, he's an Associate Professor of Environmental Science at Bond University, and he's done a lot of work into unprovoked shark bites and shark bite incidences more broadly. Thanks so much for joining me, Daryl. Thank you. Now, it's it's summer. It might, might not feel like summer right now, but it is summer, and of course we have more people in the ocean, and thus shark anxiety is pretty high. Could you just give us like a rundown of the current state of play for sharks in and around Australian waters? Are these anxieties justified? 
I think our shark anxiety is actually building over time. We've got a lot more media reporting and a lot more discussion regarding sharks. And we've also obviously had a series of fatalities last year in 2020. Australia has the three species of sharks which are most responsible for unprovoked shark bites, particularly fatalities, tigers, bulls and whites. And we've certainly seen a number of bites last year from whites uh, and bulls. 2020, as you kind of touch on there, we, we saw the most deaths from shark bites in Australia that we've seen in some time. And just on Friday, we saw a, a teenager who had lived in Australia was killed in New Zealand. Why have we seen this spike in deaths? We've actually had about the same number of bites last year as we, we normally have, roughly. But you're right, we had a much larger number of fatalities. When we're dealing with, with a phenomenon such as shark bite, which is very rare, you do expect to see these statistical anomalies. So you, and I think, that's, uh, I think that's what's happened. After these fatal shark bites, we tend to see these emotional responses. A lot of people will come out calling for culls, uh, and often culls will then take place in the form of drum lines or other methods. How effective are approaches like this? Going out and trying to kill a shark that's allegedly responsible is not effective, so that initial response really is just to placate the public. So that's something that we always need to sort of bear in mind, but there's always pressure for authorities to do it. What about our, more broadly, our education of sharks in Australia and our perception of sharks? Do you think that things need to change in that area? I think governments, WA, New South Wales and Queensland have worked very hard and very effectively on education campaigns. The challenge going forward is, is that we're putting a lot more drones, for example, on beaches to spot sharks. So we're putting more effort to spot sharks and we're seeing more sharks and that's being reported to the public. So you've got a bit of a feedback loop where people are hearing about more and more sharks and the more effort we put in, we're likely to see sharks most days on most beaches. So that's going to be a particular challenge going forward. We are very clearly getting much better at spotting sharks. And what about the the general public perception? I mean, pop culture hasn't done it a lot of favours for sharks, thinking of movies like Jaws and, and also the way they're described in the media. One thing uh, I've picked up on uh, a lot of researchers like yourself, you, you don't use the word attack at all. It's uh, unprovoked shark bite or shark bite incident. Could you give a bit of an insight into why that terminology is important? Yes, because attack is a, when you think about what the word attack means, it means intent. So, for example, an army attacks, an animal is feeding. Over time, though, there is community softening and greater community support for sharks and shark conservation. But it is very clear that we still have this Jaws, Sharknado dogma of sharks being these malevolent hunters that are out to steal our summer and our families. In terms of modern safety strategies, you, you touched on it before, we've got drones and all of these things emerging. Are these kind of strategies that we can put our faith in as, as effective for kind of notifying the public of, of shark incidents? Yeah, there's no single magic bullet because we have a very large coast with very different beach habitats and very different areas where people swim, doing different water activities. We've got different species of sharks, but we do have an emerging toolbox of things that we can do. So there are personal electric deterrents which do work. They don't reduce the risk of a bite to zero, but they do statistically reduce the risk. One of the big things that we need to do is we need to make more informed choices when we go into the water. So in northern New South Wales, a number of the shark bites and particular fatalities, looking at the eyewitness reports, the common thread is that people have noticed a lot of bait fish, a lot of bird activity, dolphins, and they've gone surfing anyway because under the urban myth that dolphins scare sharks away and they've died. Yeah, so you need to make more of an informed decision. And even if you're desperate for a surf, maybe rethink on that particular morning or wait an hour or so. 
And is there any real reason that people should be avoiding the water or, or holding these fears of sharks when they're going to the beach, you know, day to day throughout summer? Shark attacks still remain rare. They will always be rare. So uh, I still encourage people to, to enjoy the water, but just think about it a bit more. If you're going to a, a patrol beach, swim between the flags and stay safe this summer. Thank you so much, Daryl, for joining me today on Backchat and educating us all about sharks. Thank you. That was environmental scientist Dr. Daryl McPhee shining a light on the world of sharks with Backchat producer Eamon Snow. Before we go, we've got one another original by Sydney musician Nick Harriet. This one is about the double standards between Australia and America, off the back of the Capitol insurgents this week. Have a listen. Human rights treaties we both violate Mass murdering settlers we both celebrate But once in a blue moon we get to say Hey, at least we're not like the states Indigenous landmarks we both desecrate Racist policemen, we don't terminate But when they outdo us, we proudly proclaim Hey, at least we're not like the states We're comfortable saying it won't happen here But look what can happen in four little years Peaceful protesters, we both denigrate Climate deniers, we inaugurate And when we watch their ones, ours get away Hey, at least we're not like the states Tell me please We're not like the state.